0: Well, already I've been uh, mutually encouraged by by your faith. and have just been delightful uh, to be here. And I want to continue in the things we studied uh, yesterday. And so yesterday, I know some of you weren't here, uh, we began uh, to study uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. And we said four things. We said four things about biblical manhood and womanhood. We saw... One, men and women were equally and personally created by God in His image. So there's a total equality in creation. And Peter tells us in salvation too, between men and women, in creation we're both made in the image of God. In salvation we are co-heirs of the grace of life. And so there's an absolute unity that ought to be portrayed in our relationships as brothers and sisters In the Lord. The second thing we saw is that men and women were created for different roles. And so, even though there's a unity, uh, even though there's a a commonality and equality, that's a better word, equality, there's a difference. There's a clear difference in how we're made. We're made to fulfill different roles. And really, we'll focus, we'll begin to focus here in the next two messages, not just that we were made the same, but we were given different roles, but we were actually made. For those different roles. Mm. Women are better at being women than men. <laughs> one person put it. and And men are better at being men. So that's encouraging. <laughs> men and women were both cursed in their different roles. And so the way in which the curse, if you're not familiar with the Scriptures, of course, God made everything good. And then, mankind rebelled against Him and God cursed the earth and man and woman. And we saw that the way we're cursed is actually touched by, by in, our, in our roles. And, and we're specifically cursed in ways that make it hard to, to live out the way in which God has formed us to be and desires us to be. And then we saw, praise the Lord, men and women are being recreated and redeemed in their different roles. So it's not like God created men and women with roles, saw them fall into sin, and said, scrap that. Let's go to plan B. I'll just redeem them in a generic way and get them to heaven. He didn't say that. He redeemed them in a way that restores them to the roles He had given them in creation. And really, how else could He restore them? Because we were made that way. In order for Him to restore us a different way, He would have had to remake us. And He doesn't do that. He takes who we are and saves us and recreates us as we are. And so I want to pray, and then I want to begin to ask the question, what is a real man? What, what is a real man? And then this evening we'll ask, what is a real woman? What, is, what does God define as biblical womanhood? And what does God define as biblical Manhood. I, I want to pray, but I will say one thing just because it's in my mind right now. I want to be abundantly clear that what I am trying to persuade you of over the next number of nights is not that we should return to traditional roles for men and women. What we're aiming for is biblical roles for men and women. You know that Abraham cooked supper once? <laughs> right? Andreas Kostenberger points that out. He cooked supper. And so, you know that Paul shepherded like a nursing mother? And so we want to be careful that we don't begin to draw rigid, legalistic roles and return to traditional values like all of a sudden if he balances the checkbook, now you're biblical. That is not what we're aiming for at all. We're aiming for the broad principles and the central truths of the Scriptures. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come before You. And Lord, we some of us may have just been singing and maybe feeling deeply close to Your presence. Some of us might have heard from You last night in a powerful way, but now we're tired and wondering if You'll speak to us again. Others may have heard that someone was spoken to last night and they're here for the first time and wondering if You will speak to them. Others may be on the periphery, not having ever heard Your voice in a personal way, and waiting this morning. And Lord God, we pray, whether we feel close to You, or whether we feel You are being silent to us right now, Lord, we know that Your heart is to bless those who seek You. And so we would seek You, Lord. We would seek You. We would ask of You. We would knock on Your door. We would pound on Your door. We would cry out for mercy from You. We would ask. We would seek. We would knock. We would seek the Lord continually. We would seek His presence continually and His power. And we want to ask You, Lord, that You would do exceedingly, abundantly more than all that we ask or imagine. We pray for a fresh outpouring of Your Holy Spirit. We pray that... uh, your power and Your Spirit and Your Christ would be so dominant in our minds that we would forget ourselves. forget, Just forget ourselves and love and worship You, Lord, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have a daughter, 11 years old, and, and three boys. 9, uh, 5, and 4. And when my first boy, Luke, was born, I remember having this anxious feeling. He's my second born. I remember having this anxious feeling like I had no idea what I was supposed to do with this boy. Uh, I hadn't felt that way when, I'd, when my daughter was born. I'd, I hadn't grown up around girls, but nonetheless, uh, there was an instant daddy-daughter thing going on from the earliest months, and just a a sense of relationship with her, and a desire to protect her, and care for her. And uh, this boy was born, and I was just looking at him going like a deer in the headlights, like, what am I going to do with you? I have have no idea what I'm supposed to be leading you into. In my relationship with my dad, uh, in my growing up years, there have been better seasons at different times, but my growing up years was very... Uh, distant. He was too busy working. I was too busy rebelling for us to have any kind of deep uh, relationship. And so a- as I was given this stewardship of this little boy who had no idea that his dad was looking at him like a deer in the headlights, but I'm looking at him going, I don't know what to do with you. Uh, I just, I began to have this sort of prophecy in my mind, and I'm not talking about little little prophecy, just of this is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And in 18... <laughs> In 18 years, I'm going to be looking at a total stranger. And by God's grace, He gave me some leadership from the Scriptures about what a man should look like and what I should be leading this boy to look like. And he's, by God's grace, just a finer young man than I ever was at nine years old. And I love him a lot. And... Uh, and I. I want to share with you the the leadership I got from the Scriptures about about what it looks like to be a real man. And I want to do this not just because there can be personal confusion for many of you. Maybe didn't have a good relationship with your father or didn't ever have this role model in front of you. But, but also because the culture we're living in does not give us any clear guidance when it comes to what it looks like to develop a biblical... Masculinity. So, some people will say men need to be softer, they need to be more tender. The, the main emphasis is they need to have as little testosterone as possible, they need to be softer. Others uh, think men need to be harder. I read one columnist who's reviving the macho man. He says a real man doesn't cry, doesn't moan, doesn't complain doesn't get sick, and doesn't need to go to a doctor every time he sneezes. A real man sets the tone for his children and keeps them from discovering that he has weaknesses. Something attractive about that though to men. We're shaking our head no, but yet many are attracted to that sort of strength. And I've talked to Christians as they they try to stay strong, but of course can't do it. Uh, others would say that men need to cry more. They need to share more. They maybe even need to get more in touch with their feminine side. But but a man, one person has said, a man trying to get in touch with his feminine side is like a dog trying to get in touch with his cat side. It doesn't doesn't work. A A man doesn't have a feminine side. He was made a man. He can, he can do by God's grace because he's made in the image of God and women are made in the image of God. He can love like a nursing mother at times, but he's always a man. And so there's this confusion. Should a man be macho? Should he be tender? Should he be tough? Should he be crying more? Should he be crying less? Should he be sharing in a more feminine way? Like What is it he's supposed to do to be a biblical man? And in the midst of all this confusion, some would come along and say, there's nothing you should do. There's no such thing as manhood. It's just a social construct. Each society just erects these traditional roles. Manhood, womanhood. I mean, If you gave all the guys Barbies to play with and gave all the girls G.I. Joes, then there wouldn't be any of these distinctions anyway. It's just because you teach them these things. It's all just because you nurture them in these ways that you even have these ideas. And there really is no such thing as biblical manhood And so you're just making it all up. And yet the scriptures would point us in a different direction. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, David tells his son, I'll just be going to a few passages quickly. I'll have you turn to a few places. But in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, David tells his son Solomon, show yourself a man. And he doesn't mean let me he doesn't he's not trying to test his biological orientation. He's saying there's something called masculinity. There's something called being a man. And you need to show me you're one. When the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth, act like men. He doesn't mean act like women. I know these things are funny, but I mean this in all seriousness. There is a way in which you can say to someone, "Be a man," and it should mean something. There ought to be a set of categories in our mind that, when someone exhorts us to be a man, you have some idea what they're talking about. Otherwise, these words in Scripture make no sense. They both there's something called masculinity or manhood or manliness. And I've been helped a great deal by a man by the name of Bill Mauser who's brought out five themes from the Scriptures. Themes I want to unpack for you this morning that I think describe biblical, mature manhood. And they are these. Men are lords who exercise dominion over the earth. Men are husbandmen who cultivate and shepherd the responsibilities God gives them men are sages who walk in godly men who walk in godly wisdom men are to be like saviors who have a desire to move into problem situations and bring salvation and men are glory in a unique way they display the glory of God and so men are you want to th- what does it mean to be a man? It means to be you're not just born like this, you need to be a man. show yourself a man, but you're meant to be a lord, you're meant to be a husbandman or a shepherd, you're meant to be a sage and not a fool, and you're meant to be a savior and not an abdicator, and you're meant to be glory and so let's let's go through those. I think that you'll find them. I think that you'll find them helpful. And, and I, want to, I want you to know, that this is not just for the men. We don't just have a men's conference and give this to the men. Really, moms, this is for the mom. What are you trying to cultivate? I mean, anyone who's had a boy and a girl in their home just knows before you did anything, these two are different. Right. Yeah. They just don't do things the same way. And it's imperative that moms know When when the boys are always trying to get the swords out, it doesn't mean they're doing something wrong. Uh, It's imperative for men to know what biblical manhood looks like. It's imperative for uh, women to know what biblical manhood looks like because just the same way men can be attracted to all sorts of false views of women, maybe attracted to the sort of fashion model view of women, women are often attracted to the bad boy. They're attracted to the irresponsible guy. They're attracted to the guy with the fast money and the low character. And it's important that women understand, what am I even looking for? What is a godly man? And if you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the first thing we'll say is, real men are lords. They're called to be lords and to exercise dominion. Of course, I hope you'll understand that I mean all of this under the ultimate lord, the king of kings, and lord of lords. But nonetheless, real men are called to be lords. Genesis one twenty six says, then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. Let them have dominion to take control over, to expand an empire, to be a lord." I, I didn't I didn't I could have used the word dominator, but it has too many negative connotations. But they're to exercise dominion to to bring things under their rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Make more of you. And fill the earth. And what do you do when you fill it? You subdue it. You bring it under your authority. You bring it under your dominion and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so that is what man was made to be he was made to be someone with dominion someone with leadership and someone might say wait a second You said yesterday that women and men were made in the image of God, and here they're both given dominion over the earth, so why all of a sudden are men the ones called to be lords? It's a good question. And tonight we'll explore how women exercise dominion, because this dominion was given to them. This call to bring the world and and subdue the world and have dominion over the world is also given to women, but... Based on what we saw yesterday, that men are called to lead out in this, that men are called to be the leaders in this, I think it's fair to say that men are to lead in the process of bringing the earth under dominion, under God's rule. So, men, if you ever thought you were called to conquer the earth, it's because you were. That that that's right. There really is a sense, and we stifle men if we don't tell them this. There really is a sense in which every man has a sense of. Some plot of land, some vocation, some area where I want to exercise dominion and really subdue what's under me. Again, I told you I was flying over uh flying over Missouri in, in the Cessna Plain just the other day. And and what do you see? You see that every square inch of land has been subdued. That there's, that, that, that lands have been tilled and farms have been, have been raised up because people are doing exactly what God called them to do. And this isn't eradicated by the flood. Oh, sorry, by the fall. In Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God tells the same thing to Noah. That they're to go, he's to go into the earth and be fruitful and multiply. He's to do this exact same thing. And we see the same echoes of, of, of something even grander. Now, follow me here for a second. Men were originally created to subdue this, this good earth. But of course, the problem now is the earth is cursed and men are fallen. And you think, well, are men still to take dominion? Yes, Jesus Christ came, died for men who wouldn't take dominion, died for men who wouldn't expand His empire, was raised from the dead, and then said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and... Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Bring every single human being under my authority. That's my call to the church, is that they ought to be moving out, and where men are uh, tilling up land so they can make their own wealth, they ought to be taught that they're tilling up God's land to make wealth, to give for his causes. Where, wherever there are people exercising dominion over the earth, the church, the people of God, are to be moving into their lives, saying all authority has been given to Jesus not to you, and we are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything that He has commanded. So we're bringing out this call to exercise dominion over the earth. And biblical masculinity loves this calling. It loves to do this. Now, I think I need to say something here because there can be a sense of when you bring up these categories and people don't know where they go. So I'm supposed to exercise dominion. <laughs> and it's part of the great commission, make disciples. And we think, well, I know I know Paul Washer's making disciples. But I'm flipping burgers. I'm flipping a lot of burgers. And what does what I do have to do what they do? Well, you need to realize that every single person has been given a sphere. Every person has been given a sphere where they're to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Being small lords or big lords. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says this. S- verse 5 slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers but as serving as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord there's the Lord and not to man and so here you are In ancient Rome, you're a slave. In North America, you're at a Joe job that you don't really like where you have very little control over what you get to do and what policies are over you. But in that place where you are, you are under the lordship of Christ exercising lordship over the imperfect place where you are in this fallen world. Teaching and loving the students that have been put over you. Engineering and building a bridge that has been assigned to you. Whatever you've been given to do, you've been given to do it as a Lord who's being redeemed, who's living under the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to get rid of this idea that only the people on the front lines of the Great Commission are doing spiritual work and are really advancing the Kingdom of God. Because when you have that, what you have is a few exciting Christians and a lot of depressed Christians. It's not helpful at all. And on top of that, we need to realize that every single Christian is a missionary who has been called to advance the Lordship of Christ wherever they are. If they are a preacher like Paul, they're called to exercise the Lordship of Christ by explicitly saying, be baptized, repent, obey Jesus. But if they are a Daniel who was a government bureaucrat, and was not a preacher as we would think of one. But what he did was in the place he was, he studied all that secular Babylonian literature and then he obeyed God in the midst of a godless generation and made a massive impact for the kingdom by being a good Lord over whatever he was given to do. you follow me here? You've got to get this idea that yes, we're in the middle of this imperfect world. Yes, we're in the middle of this sinful world. And I know that the policies your company has or the policies your workplace has are not directly from God and they certainly don't come out of the Bible. But within them, they ought to have an employee who is under the Lordship of Christ. Who's sitting there going, how can I make things in this bridge project or this engineering project or this medical project, how can I make them as good, as righteous, as holy, as, as excellent as I possibly can? And how can I make money so that I can save money and give money? I can do what John Wesley said. Make as much as you can. Save as much as you can. And give as much as you can to the advancement of the Kingdom of God. That's lordship where all of a sudden every man in the church is part of the battle. On the front lines. Yeah. And you've got to get this idea that it's not just a few people are on the front lines. We have a brother in our church. He works at Gordon Food Services, which is the all-night, pack all the groceries for all the grocery stores in town. Brutal work. Hard work. Guys swearing. Guys cursing. Guys making lewd jokes all the time. And what is he doing? Well, at the end of work, he's taking the guys out to Denny's to tell them about the Gospel. And he's showing them an excellent work ethic all day long. He's being a Lord in the dominion that God has given him. Now, I know in the new heavens of the new earth, we will not work for Gordon Food Services. Praise the Lord. But it's very doubtful that this series of sermons will take any of you out of such jobs. You'll still be there at the end of these messages, right? And you're going to have to figure, does that word apply to me or do I need to get out of this to follow God? And the thing is, you don't need to get out of this to follow God. You exercise dominion there, where God has given you a place. One of the things we need to realize—you might hear this called the lordship—and it makes you nervous. Men are supposed to be lords. I don't know if I want to encourage him. You know, I mean this, but but we need to understand that we're not commending. The wicked lordship that men usually exercise. Now, men exercise lordship like Saddam Hussein, like Adolf Hitler, or like bosses that sexually manipulate their employees, like Nebuchadnezzar who said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a holy residence, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I'm not saying Christian men should seek to be masculine like this. No, the lordship we're talking about is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who exercised lordship not by coming to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So we're talking about servant lordship. You Think about this. Jesus was promised by Satan all the kingdoms of the earth. And that was a temptation. Why was it a temptation? Because just like a hungry Jesus would have wanted bread, Jesus also wanted to rule all the kingdoms of the earth. But He wouldn't take it Satan's way. He wouldn't take it from Satan's hand and bowing before Satan. He would only take it God's way, which meant bowing before God in humble obedience even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted Him to the highest place and given Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He's the Lord. And all Christian lordship is under His lordship. One other burden I have before I move on from this point is that not only can lordship be perverted like in Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or any power-hungry man, but lordship, and this is I think a specifically North American temptation right now, can be trivialized. Most of the men at Lake Road Chapel are not struggling with their deep desire to be a world dictator. But we trivialize lordship, don't we? We can't seem to advance God's cause in our workplace. We can't seem to advance God's cause by getting a wife. We can't seem to advance God's cause by training our children. And so we settle for a hobby or a video game. The amount of money spent on video games... What do men do in many video games? They take dominion. They fight battle scenes like you wouldn't believe. They engage a world of war where they can take dominion. People say, video games are wrong. Well, have you even asked why they're so attractive? The reason they're so attractive is because in real life, to get dominion, you have to be self-disciplined. You have to have faith. You have to trust the Lord. But in a video game, you just got to pay 50 bucks, get the video game on your system, and have good thumb-eye coordination. And what do you do when you get that? You get to exercise lordship. You get to win battles. You get to be a general. I, I, I knew of a brother who after hearing the sermon the first time I preached said, you know what? I have been going home and instead of helping my wife for the first hour after work, I just play Civilization for an hour. He wanted to be a lord. Just wrong lord. He was being a lord of a video game instead of taking care of those kids and his wife. Or I knew another brother who who would actually make money on video games. He would play for other people and win gold coins so they could clear levels. And he would sell these things on eBay to make money. Now, why is there a market for people buying gold coins for video games? Because men want to take dominion. They want to take dominion. And the Christian ought to be there in their lives saying, that desire you have to conquer the world, it's not wrong. Problem? It's been loosed from Jesus Christ. You were meant to bow to Him and then to conquer the world for Him and with Him in the power of His Spirit, making every knee bow and bringing a whole world into submission to Jesus Christ. That's your calling. The calling of the Christian church is not you should quit playing exciting video games and you should come to our exciting worship services. That's not it. No matter how good we are, we don't have that exciting worship services unless you got the Spirit. The call of the church is you're trivializing the lordship you were made by. You were made to be a lord, but you're doing it in video games. You're, you're conquering rock collections. I mean, come on. Like, you were made to submit to God and bring others into submission to God. Christian men are called to be lords. Christian men are called to be husbandmen. It's an older word. The idea is of caring for something and tilling it and cultivating it and stewarding it and guarding over it. Um, Look at Genesis chapter 2. This is before Eve is on the scene. Adam is given a specific responsibility by God. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So there was, there was work to do in the garden, there was keeping to do in the garden, there was tending to do in the garden. And my experience is that it's sometimes easy to get the men fired up about the idea of being a Lord, but husbandman's a little harder. Go street preaching. Yes! Counsel a guy for 20 weeks. Ugh. Get a wife. Yes! Tend her for 50 years. Have lots of children. Raise them in the nurture and of the Lord. I'll have lots of children. No, but go home and take care of them. Spend time with them. Don't get mad at them all the time. This idea of, of tending something, working something, keeping something, is much harder for many men. They love to press out and take the next hill, but then not to work it and keep it. But we see that right in the very fabric of the way men are made is to develop things. This is, this is the idea in working and keeping something. It's an amazing thing. Now, God put Adam in a perfect garden and said, Get to work improving it. Is that not amazing? The, the, the garden that God created, the earth that God created, was created perfect and in need of the touch of man and woman's hands to cultivate it and work it and to bring out everything that's in it. One person has pointed out that 25.7% of the earth's crust is, is uh, made of silicone. But for thousands of years of human history, we just walked on top of the stuff without realizing it could make iPhones. And, and And, without realizing that it could make computers and it could make it so that you could contact people all over the world through the internet through a computer, but mankind works the ground and cultivates the ground, takes raw materials and develops them so they can do things that have tremendous power for evil but also tremendous power for good we We see this uh, working in keeping in Genesis chapter. Uh, four Genesis chapter four um, where we hear about we hear about life as humanity is is uh developing. Um these are not godly men we're looking at in Genesis chapter four, but nonetheless they show us men working and keeping and developing things. Uh, verse 20 of Genesis chapter four. Ada Bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So Jabel developed uh tents and livestock. He developed agricultural techniques. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And so Right there, just at the very beginning of mankind, men begin to develop and to cultivate and to work and keep the ground that God's made. And one string of them are making musical instruments, and another are making, uh, they're doing livestock. And, and, and you think of where this has gone in the thousands of years since this time. I mean, now they know how to breed cattle that have the fat marbled into the meat. And so it's leaner, but there's more fat in the meat, so it tastes better. That's incredible, and you think, "Well, that's just secular." No, that's mankind can't stop working and cultivating and trying to improve things. He can't stop. He was made in the image of God. I think that's amazing. You can make meat leaner, meat leaner, with the fat marbled in it, so it tastes better. That's amazing. And simple flutes have turned into saxophones and orchestral flutes and violins and musical instruments that can bring tears to your eyes if they're played well. Put you in touch with beauty. I mean, brother, aren't we glad the guitar was created? It was amazing. But it didn't come along for a few thousand years. I had to work at it and keep it and tend it. And, and the things that have been made with bronze... And iron, and now tungsten. I mean, it's just—it's unreal. This, this, this cultivating that man is so prone to do in the world. But for a Christian man, there's a sense in which all of this ought to be done to the glory of God. All of this is being done to the glory of God. When we, when some of our people become doctors and they do research, they don't just do it for the glory of their name. They do it for the good of humanity and the glory of God. And so you see that we are called to be cultivators. We're called to work and to keep. And this this is not just uh, something we do with, with raw materials. It's something that every Christian man should be doing with his home. Right? What happens when you get a wife and she's swept off her feet and thrilled to be your wife, and then you neglect her because you're too busy at work or in ministry. What happens to that that woman? Well, she's not washed with the Word. And she's not cared for. And the anxieties that are in her heart begin to overtake her. And the beauty that could be cultivated out of her is diminished. What happens when fathers say, I want to have lots of children of the glory of God? There's the Lord instinct. But then he can't bring himself to raise them, tend them, and spend hours on the phone with them, talk to them. What do you want? You wind up with exasperated children. Fathers don't exasperate. You got to cultivate. You got to tend. You got to you got to work this garden. Think about what happens when. A... I had the verse here earlier. What what happens when a father doesn't neglect his daughter or doesn't doesn't care for his daughter? Well. He he walks a curse up the aisle. An unloved woman. Uh, so it says uh, the proverb says one of the worst things in the world is an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And so, a, a real man, yes, he's got this impulse. Like Lord Jesus, expand your kingdom through me. Use me to advance your kingdom. To to show Your Lordship even in my secular place of work, to show Your Lordship as I witness to my fellow co-workers, to show Your Lordship as I fund missionaries who go out from here. Lord, let me be part of that. But then, Lord, in all of it, let me, let me tend. Let me work. Let me keep. Being a Lord requires faith that God can help you move forward with His Kingdom. Being a husband requires patience. Endurance, slow work, kindness instead of anger. And the Holy Spirit gives us the perfect fruit to be husbandmen. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. The third thing that real men are called to be is real men are called to be saviors. Real men are called to be saviors. Look at Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. Look at verse twenty two. And honestly, brothers, some of these points should just humble us to the dust. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Give your husband the same reverence, the same honor, the same devotion that you would give to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is Himself its Savior. Treat your husband like you treat your Savior. Now, this is not saying that you get the two confused. Jesus has an utterly unique role to play in our salvation. He alone does everything to accomplish our salvation. And yet, in His grace, in His mercy, He allows men and women in our lives to reflect Him and to even share some of the honor and glory of who He is. And so it tells husbands, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Love her like Jesus. She's to treat you like Jesus. You're to act like Jesus. And this is mature manhood. It's not simply a man that's walking around going, I'm the Lord. God made me a Lord. That's just an abuse of the Bible. But it's a man who understands when he's single that what he's maturing to be. If he wants to get married, is he's maturing to be a man who can act like Jesus. A man who can care for those in need. And the Savior impulse is there in godly men, isn't it? Not that they want to be Jesus, but they, they hear about the Holocaust of the unborn and they want to do something about it. They want to see some saved. A mature, godly man hears about sex trafficking, which is just rampant all over the world right now, and he has two impulses. One is, Lord, never let me fall into that. The second is, Lord, let me do something about that. Godliness is not when you just avoid all sin. Godliness is when you move into sinful situations with redemption. That's godliness. And part of the problem in our day is that any time a guy gets that kind of a sense, that sense of chivalry, that sense of desire to move into people's lives to help them and serve them and protect them and care for them, we say, you've got a Messiah complex. And certainly, many men do have a Messiah complex. They want to be the Savior of the world. But humble servants of Jesus who know Jesus is their only Savior really ought to be moving through life seeking to do others' good. Seeking to save them out of bad situations. Seeking to care for them. Isn't it glorious that William Carey went to India and in addition to preaching the Gospel, saw the horrible practice of widow burning At that time in India, when a man died, his widow was burned as an act of devotion. And William Carey spent years working to defend the widows and eventually had the law translated. It was actually a Sunday morning when he was on his way to church that the law was changed. And he was told to translate the law so that the people could read it because widow burning would be made illegal. So he said, I know I should skip church to translate this law so that at least one widow might be saved. That's a Savior impulse. That's to be like, I want to move in a situation to save. To care for it. It's not a Messiah complex when someone like William Carey turns around and gives Jesus all the glory for His desire to care for others. It's right for little boys to read David and Goliath and want to grow up to be like David. It's right to read about Jonathan and his armor-bearer going out to do something great for the Lord and want to do it yourself. It's a great thing. It ought to be encouraged in young men. It ought to be strengthened. It ought to be commended. Fourth, real men are sages. This is actually one of the easiest ones to prove textually. Textually. Have you read the book of Proverbs? There's two words in the book of Proverbs that are just over and over and over and over. My son. My son. My son. My son. Chapter 1-1. My son. Chapter 2-1. My son. Over and over. And over. My son. And what? So the book of Proverbs is written from a father to a son. And what is that father saying? He's saying, don't be a fool. Be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, He says to His Son. Be wise. And we've got to get this idea that fathers are men who speak into their children's lives to keep their boys from being fools. Because, Proverbs 22.15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Do you realize that in the book of Proverbs, we have a resource to make godly men no matter where they grow up? Far too often we thought if I'm gonna make a godly man, I need to make sure they grow up in a safe place, I need to change their environment, I need to make sure I need to just control what they watch on TV, and it's all about separation. The first chapter of the book of Proverbs is instructions about how you keep your kids out of gangs. Have you read that? 118, look at it. Think, oh, the modern problem of gangs. Modern, like Solomon Modern? (laughs) (laughs) Proverbs uh, chapter 1. The father speaking to his son says to his son, He says, "Hear, my son, your father's." Now, let me just put this in context. My son was going on his first sleepover in a sort of a, in in in, with a bunch of kids I didn't know, and so I took him out for supper a couple weeks ago. And I read him Proverbs chapter one. I said, "You're going to be with a group of boys that you don't know, and they're going to be doing all kinds of things. I don't know what they're going to be doing." And here's what I said to him. I said, "You need to know that when you're with a group of boys, you have tremendous potential for good." Paul, Silas, Barnabas, taking the planet for Jesus. That's what you want. To, and you've got tremendous potential for evil when you're with a group of boys. And I said, so you need to know what you do when you're with boys. I said, my son, your fa- hear, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now, I don't know if you, but if you're familiar with this word bling, Bling is the fancy stuff you wear when you're trying to show how cool you are. He's saying you listen to me, that's your bling. That's your fancy garland. That's that's the pendant for your neck. That's the jewelry you wear. My wisdom. He knows what speaks to young men. It's either diamonds hanging around your neck or my wisdom. Get over on my wisdom. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, here's the gang, come with us, plural, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. The the, the gang is saying, let's go roll somebody. Let's go take someone down and get their money. And he says, my son, if you hear that, do not consent. He's equipping him to know what to do when the gang talks to him. This is Solomon's time. It says, We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. We will have bling. Throw in Your lot among us. We will have one purse. And the Father says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back Your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. He says, listen, when you're trying to catch a bird, you don't lay a net while the bird's watching. Even a pea-brained bird doesn't fall for that. But gang members do. They go out to kill others and they are laying the net for their own destruction. He's setting it up for the Son. He said, my son, you're going to face this. There's going to be a time when you're not hearing me. You're going to be hearing the gang members. You've got to know what they're going to say to you. That means a good father knows how gang members talk. Do you hear that? He's aware of what's going to come at His Son. And, so he's, and, he's, and he's talking to him before the gang members do. Because when the gang members get to you first, you're done. Jewels? Money? Come on, come with me. And so the Father is trying to get His Son to be wise. And wisdom means you know where things are going before they go there. That's what wisdom is. You know where this is going before it goes there. And it's a myth of the modern world that you've got to try everything once in order to know what it's like. Wisdom... Look at Proverbs chapter 5. The father talks to his son about sex. He says, My son... Be attentive to My wisdom. Incline your ear to My understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, my son, you've got to see the end. She is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. She'll kill you. I heard a story one time about a boy staring at one of the girls on the magazines in the grocery store. And his mother looked at him and she goes, that's gross. That's the wrong answer. It's not gross. It's deeply attractive. It's, it's honey. It's, it's attractive. The kid knows it's attractive. He knows his mother's out of touch. The right answer from the mother is that will kill you. That looks good now. That will kill you. And a father and a mother, they know my boy was born a fool and I've got to help them be wise. And I've got to help them be wise. I can't just pretend there aren't gangs out there and I can't just pretend there isn't pornography everywhere. I've got to talk to my kids about it first from the Bible. Well, if I bring it up, then they'll know about it. They're going to know about it. There is nowhere to go in this culture anymore. Nowhere to go. There's nowhere, the internet has made sheltering completely impossible. But there is ways to make wise men. You can make wise men who, by the Spirit of God, receive wisdom. And in the Proverbs, we hear the Father giving instruction on how to avoid the shady lady, how to make money. Boys need to be told how to make money. Playing video games on the couch while I put you through college is not an effective way to make money. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Proverbs 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. We ought to be giving our children a vision for money. Son, do something with your life where you can make money. Why should I make money? Isn't money bad, Dad? No, money used badly is bad. Money used to support a wife, love kids, and advance the cause of the Great Commission is good money. It's money well used. Again, Wesley, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. It's a great way to live. I had a real estate agent take me out for lunch one time, and he's like, I'm getting kind of successful. What should I do? <laughs> it was a good concern. It was a very good concern. Tremendous heart. But the worst thing to say to him would, be, would just be say, be worried. Spend the next 40 years of making lots of money in real estate being worried. You don't just tell people the, the thing to stop. You tell them the thing to start. I, tell our, I take our businessmen in our church out for lunch and I say to them, you are at the start of your career right now. You may fall. You may not make any money. You may wind up broke. But your career may advance. You may make more and more money. And if you do, you should be thinking about buying entire orphanages from Africa when you're turning 50. You need to be thinking now about what you're going to use all that money for to do great goods. So you've got guys who are like making six figures, living on two, and doing crazy things for the kingdom with their money. That's glorious. But just this sort of like don't do the wrong thing approach to manhood is not going to encourage any Lord. Go do more! The safest place for you is to be giving as much as you can to the Kingdom of God. The other thing about real men being sages... As one author put it, we must therefore teach our boys the masculinity of study, of learning, of books, of intellectual discussion. Too often we let little boys drift into a situation where they pit one aspect of masculinity against another. When this happens, for example, a boy who naturally loves the outdoors can too readily readily dismiss software programming as effeminate. Or even worse, come to look down on poetry Intellectual discipline, or as Peter put it, girding the loins of the mind is an important part of growing to manhood. I'll go to my last point in a second, but can I just say this? The the world is offering compelling visions of manhood to boys. It is. There's the hip-hop version. You can have women and bling everywhere. There's just the get rich and enjoy luxuries vision that you can have. There's the intellectual vision that says you can be smarter than everyone and demean everyone with your intellect. There's all kinds of compelling visions of manhood. But look at this one. Is this not glorious? You weren't meant to conquer any square inch of earth for you. You were meant to be a conquering Lord under Jesus, advancing His kingdom. You were meant to nurture and shepherd those God entrusts you like a wife and children and maybe some land or maybe a job. You were, meant to do, you were meant to use your resources to be a Savior to move out and to do good things like William Carey to move out to help others. And you were meant to be a savvy, wise sage who knows things where things are going before they get there. Because you've read the Word of God. And you avoid the pitfalls of the world. And finally, real men are to be glory. Real men are to be glory. look at First Corinthians eleven. First Corinthians eleven. Uh, we won't debate the particulars of this passage with with head coverings or not, but notice the bigger principles that are very clear. First Corinthians eleven verse seven. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this is a hard one to express. Because we want to say very clearly that both men and women are the glory of God. Isaiah, bring My sons and My daughters from afar. Or are My sons and daughters who I created for My glory. Both men and women are created for the glory of God. Equal in the image of God. And yet, the way God has made glory to work goes like this. Whatever you were made from and for, you glorify. The earth was made from and for God, and so it glorifies God. The heavens declare the glory of God. It was made from Him and for Him, and so it glorifies Him. Man was then made from God and for God, and He glorifies Him. But woman was taken out of man. She was made from Him and for Him, and so she glorifies Him. All the glory eventually goes back to God. But creation glorifies God just by being creation the way He wanted it to be. Man glorifies God by worshiping and serving Him. And women glorify God in part by honoring and reverencing godly men, especially their husbands. They they, they are the glory of their husbands. And if you want proof, you just need to meet my wife. She is an incredible woman. And, And when she is being tended and cultivated and cared for, and nurtured, and I'm loving her like a Lord, it makes her shine. And in God's economy, that glorifies me. And I just want to pass that glory on to God. It says here, that it says, you see the passage, you can't really avoid it, right? Verse 7, A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of glory of God, but woman is the glory of man For Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this, I think, brings up something we said yesterday, but something I think is very, very important. We don't know how to conduct ourselves as glorious beings. Because we're told that anyone who conducts themselves with glory or dignity is stuck up and full of pretense. Is that not true? I mean, if you were just to walk with a straight back and answer like you knew Jesus, you would be accused of being a snob or stuck up. We, we live in a world that glorifies uh, sassy rock stars and Napoleon Dynamite and watches movies like Dumb and Dumber and just glories in being stupid. And so when a guy comes along who's got some, self, some self-respect because he loves Jesus, that guy doesn't appear godly. He appears stuck up. Full of himself. When really, he might be an extremely humble man. It takes humility to receive the fact that you've been made in the image and glory of God and you ought to act like it all the time. There's there's an insightful little comment in uh, one of the Narnia books that that makes this so clear. Uh, In in in, uh, I can't remember which book this one's from, but in one of the books, uh, it's talk Aslan is talking, and he's he's of course known as the untamed lion, but who's good. He's terrible, and he's good. And C.S. Lewis comments, and he says, "Sometimes, uh, people who have never been in Narnia think, think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time." Our culture has no idea that something can be good and terrible at the same time. That a man can have fierce convictions, that he could get so angry at unrighteousness that he could clear out a temple. And be good. At the same time, and we need to stop making heroes out of fools, and stop admiring pure, uh, just undignified levity that just demeans men and women and acts like there's nothing higher in the world than to be a to be a just a, a fool. And we need to admire men like John G. Payton who went to be a missionary to the New Hebrides. We need to admire men who stay married to one woman for 50 years out of faithfulness and devotion. Those men need to be esteemed and they need to be seen as glorious. And a young man ought to have a sense that I'm not meant to be an idiot. I'm meant to be the glory of God. So we'll put these things in the context of marriage in a few talks, but for now, a biblical man is one who is a Lord spreading God's dominion. A biblical man is one who is a husbandman who tends and keeps whatever God puts under His dominion. He is a Savior who loves to rescue those who are under bad dominions. He is a Sage who knows where things are going before they go there and acts in wisdom. And he is the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, none of what I'm saying. Um, can be true apart from You working in us. And Lord, You're you're really the only One who's ever lived anything I've spoken about. Lord, You are the Lord who expanded God's kingdom, whose eye was always to the advancement of God's kingdom. You're the Good Shepherd who not only won disciples, but then tended them and let them hear Your voice and grew them up and nurtured them. Lord God, you are the Savior, the ultimate Savior, the one we can just reflect, who pitied us in our sin and took us out of it. And Lord God, you are the sage. Even when you were 12, you were growing in wisdom and in stature. You never walked into anyone's trap because you always knew where things were going. You, you detected flattery, you detected temptation. You detected ways of folly from a mile away. And Lord, you are uniquely equipped to be called the glory of God. Lord, would you make men, hundreds of men, in these coming days, men who are like you? Lord, help moms to raise men like you. help brothers to encourage each other to be men like You. And help wives to affirm and encourage and strengthen men who are seeking to become more and more like You even though they stumble in many ways. Lord, I pray that You do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.